we've been learning what our purpose is, what our, our calling is, what vision is. They're really different words for the same thing. What we've seen is that Jesus chose us. You were chosen. You're not here today by accident. You are here today. You are in the body of Christ today, if indeed you are, because God chose you. He's chosen many other people, but not everybody's responded. And he's chosen you. And we've seen that he chose you out of all kinds of alternatives, and he had to know you in order to choose you. And then we've looked at what has he chosen me to do. Well, he says in John 15 that we would bear fruit and that our, that fruit would remain. He doesn't choose you because of the fruit you produce. He chooses you in order to produce fruit through you. And then we've looked at his choosing of the disciples, at least four of them. We saw in Matthew 4 that Jesus came to them, met them where they were. And he said, simply come follow me. And that the basis of this calling is really in essence that. Personally, personal invitation from, from the head of the church. The personal invitation from the Son of the living God to follow him. It's not to go do great things for him. We may end up doing that, but that's a consequence of following him. If you try to do things for him without following him, you're not answering his call. So the primary thing is to enter into a living, vital relationship with him by which you're just following him. It's that simple. And that's one of the things that we miss so easily and why often things get out. See, God is a God of order. If we do things in his order, it works. I was downstairs in the basement yesterday and, and, and there was a load of, of laundry in the washing machine and I was doing something else and I noticed this thing going like this, you know. And you, you, let, you know if you do laundry, if, it gets, if the laundry all gets to one side in the spin cycle, especially a large one, it'll vibrate all over the place and if it really gets out of, out of alignment, it will begin to move, move the, the washing machine because it's out of order. When we do things in the order that God has ordained, he's able to work through us. When we try to do things our way or the way somebody else has thought of or our own ideas, it doesn't work, and it becomes very difficult work. But when we do things his way, there's an ease about it. It doesn't mean there aren't challenges that we go through. It doesn't mean that we won't have to overcome obstacles. It doesn't mean that there's not hard work involved, but there's, an, there's a flow to it whereby he is able to throw, flow through you. So the beginning of the see, come follow me, we saw that, that part of following him was they had to leave where they were. They had to let go of the things they trusted in, let go of the things that were meaningful to them in order to follow him first because he didn't stay where they were. And some of us are trying to follow him and stay where we were. And you can't do that. And so then, then we saw that, that to follow him meant that he was going to do a work in us because he said, I will make you into something. And we're in the process of allowing God to do this work inside of us and to cooperate with him. And then we've seen that what he wants to make all of us, every one of us into, is fishers of men. So we've been learning about how to do that. And we've been talking about if you're going to go fishing, you've got to make sure you use the right bait. Because there's nothing about that metal barbed hook that a fish is going to want to bite on. And so much of the church and so many of us have been out trying to fish with either the wrong bait or no bait at all. So bait is what attracts the fish so they're going to want to bite the hook so that they can be brought into, out of the water and into the, into the boat in the case of fishing. In this case, so that they can be brought out of the world, out of the darkness, out of the oppression, out of all the, all the pressures of, 
of the world and of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what we want to bring them out of and into the world. And you and I can't do that. You and I are not the hook. The Holy Spirit's job is to hook them. Our job is to be the bait that attracts the fish so that they'll be in the place where the Holy Spirit can hook them and bring them out of the darkness and into his life and into eternal life. We looked at Jesus and saw what he did. We saw in John chapter 4 that there's a woman, a Samaritan woman, someone he should not have been talking to under the customs of their day. But he was willing to cross cultural lines. He was willing to cross, cross uh, uh, traditions. He was willing to get outside the box and to speak to somebody that it was not technically proper for him to speak to in that day. But he did it out of compassion for her. We saw as we looked into her life that she was not the most stellar example of purity and of, of godliness because he dealt with that issue in her life. He says, go call your husband and have him come here. And she says, well... I don't have a husband. He says, that's right, you've got five, had five. And think about that. Five failed relationships. And so she's living with a man now who's not her husband. Why? Because after five, she's given up. She's given up. And he comes to her. And we looked at what he didn't do. He didn't condemn her. He didn't judge her. Because we saw that the Son of God did not come to condemn and to judge, but to save. So if he didn't come to condemn and judge but to save, what business do we have to condemn and to judge? But instead our role is to help him save. So what we saw that that meant is so much of the time the church is either not using bait, we're trying to catch fish by telling them how wrong they are. You're doing this wrong and you're doing that wrong. and you're, Most of them know they're doing something wrong. That's like trying to catch fish with a barbed hook and no bait. There's nothing about that message that's going to attract a fish. But there was something about Jesus that attracted sinners to him. It's interesting, the religious people moved away, but the sinners flocked to him. Why? I mean, he's perfect righteousness and holiness. If there's anyone that had a right to judge, it was Jesus But he didn't judge them. He loved them. Now, he didn't leave them where they were. Because once they'd come to him, he challenged them to change. And isn't that our testimony? Isn't that our testimony? He meets you where you are, but doesn't leave you where you are. So we've seen the first thing about being the right bait is having the right attitude, the right heart. Because it's what's in your heart that people pick up. Not what you say. It's what's in your heart. God taught me that a long time ago about training our children. He says, son, it doesn't matter what you tell them and do with them for correction. It's the motive in your heart that matters. So if you're correcting them, if you're spanking them or disciplining them because you're angry or embarrassed, that's what you're going to communicate. He says, so the proper way to discipline is to first of all check your motive and your attitude. Because that's what you're going to com- com- communicate. That's not just true about correction. It's true about reaching out to people. Yep. And so the motive of our heart is so important. To make sure it's God's heart towards them, not your heart or my heart towards them. And we looked at examples of that. We saw Jesus not only with the woman at the well, we saw him also with the woman caught in adultery. 
And we saw how he handled her and how he, he, he didn't judge her, but he challenged her to go and sin no more. Then the last time we began to look at a second aspect of the right kind of bait. And we looked at that Jesus went out among people. He didn't just sit in church. He went out because you don't catch fish sitting at home. You got to go where the fish are. They don't come to where you are, by and large. So they, he went to where they were, and he went and he met their needs. And the first need, the need we looked at last time, was the thing he did more than anything else other than teach and preach, was he healed the sick. He met their physical needs of a hurting, bound up, painful people, and he went and delivered them and set them free. Why? It shows God cared about them. Because when I was raised in church, I was taught, well, Jesus performed miracles to prove who he was. We'd only have to do that a few times, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have to heal everybody. But he healed everybody that ever came to him, he healed. In fact, there were people he healed, he didn't even know who they were. Because there are a number of places where it talks about a multitude came to him. The end of Matthew, I think it's 14, in the end of that chapter it says, they came to him and they believed that if they just touch his garment, they'd be made well, whole. They decided that. Not, Jesus didn't say, all right, whoever can touch my garment... Between 1 and 1.30, you're going to be made well. No, they came and they decided, if we can just touch his garment, we'll be made well. Well, we know of one woman that did that, and that was separately. And we saw that in, in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 5. But this is a whole crowd. But the key verse is at the end, it says, and as many as touched him were made whole. Matthew 9, it says, he was in a, in a building beginning to preach. And it says, the power to God of God to heal was present. Pastor Hagen, when he was here, he preached on that message. The power of God was present to heal. It, it's no respecter of persons. It didn't heal a certain group and refused to heal another group. Because Jesus, and I don't have time this morning to go through the scriptures that tell you, but there are there's many scriptures that show that Jesus was the will of God in action on the earth. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, which tells us it's a person, was with God. Verse 14 says, And the Word, He, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, even as of the only begotten of the Father. We beheld Him. John, uh, uh, 1 John chapter 1 says, And, 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 and he, God has spoken through many times, through many different people, but in the last days He's spoken to us, communicated Himself through the Son. It says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that, that he, is the out, he is the outshining of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. It says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that he is the image of God. First, uh, Colossians chapter 1, 15. Again, he is the image of God. Jesus himself said to Philip in John chapter 14, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Elsewhere he says, I only do what I see my Father. So if you want to know what God's will is, look at what Jesus did. Because one of his purposes in coming to this earth and taking on flesh was to exhibit God's character in his nature, in his will. And so when we look and see that the number one thing he did, other than proclaim the kingdom of God, was to heal people, 
that tells us something about God's nature and his character and his will. A number of years ago, I did a, a, a teaching series on healing. And I had one night where I just imagined we were part of one of his crowds that came for healing. And that, that you were in the crowd. Because it says in several cases, he healed them all. So all you had to do is be in the crowd and you'd be healed. He didn't heal some and leave others out. If you were in the crowd that came and touched him, you were healed. So all you had to do is be in the crowd to be healed. That meant everybody in the crowd, it must have been his will to heal. But how did he know if he didn't know who was in the crowd? So we saw that the, the first thing Jesus did, the mo- by that I mean the most common thing he did, as bait to draw people in as he met them where they were in their natural, physical, material needs. So again, I was raised in a church where we kind of had this attitude that, 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 and this is what religion does, that God is above all that. That God doesn't care about or, or, or he's not involved in, 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 because he's so spirit, he's spiritual. And spiritual things are much more important than natural, material things. And, and that's true. But that doesn't mean God doesn't care about the natural material things. Who made them? God made Who made your body? God did. So it must be important to him because he made it. He made this material realm. And so one of the things that, that God has to break through in order to reach people is for them to understand he cares about everything about your life. It says even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, with some of that's an easier project than with others. I'm not looking at anybody. I'd have to look in my mirror. That means he knows every... It says that not a a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, that he doesn't know about it and and care about it. And what people need to know about God, the most important thing that's got to be in this bait is to know that he cares about them right where they are. I've heard people say, well, you know, in order to come to God, I've, I've got to get, I, I, I'm too dirty to come to God. That's like deciding you've got to take a sh- bath before you take a shower. I'm too dirty to get in the shower, so I've got to take a bath first. No, the reason you come to him is because only he can clean you up. That's why it's wrong for the church to judge people before they come to him because they're dirty. That's what qualifies you to come to him. Jesus said a physician doesn't come for those that are healthy. He comes for those that are needing the physician's services. So that's what we looked at last time. Now we're going to move into another aspect of this, the second aspect of his meeting their needs. We've looked at his healing bodies, but now we're going to see that God not only cares about the condition of your physical body, but he also cares about your material needs. God cares about your needs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That word means to lack anything. Because the Lord's my shepherd, I shouldn't have to want anything. That means he cares about it. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Don't you know that your Father knows what you need before you pray? He's talking in that section of scriptures about natural material needs. He says the Gentiles come to him, and that's the unbelievers, that's the people outside the covenant of God in Jesus' day. He says they come to him, 
and they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. So Matthew chapter 6. They think they're going to be heard because of their many words. In other words, because of how they pray. He says, don't you understand your father knows what you need before you pray? Why does he know what you need before you pray? Because he's involved in your life. He knows your every thought. He knows needs you have that you don't even know you have. He knows needs you're going to have that you don't know you're going to have. And he cares about meeting your needs. Say, well, how come my needs aren't met? Well, that's a good question because you've got to start out by believing he cares about you and he wants to meet your need. Because if you don't believe he cares about you and want to meet your need, you're going to blame him because your needs aren't met. Amen. Amen. And we're going to learn he's not the problem. So let's see. There's him and there's me. And it's not him. I wonder who it could be. And you know, but we're like that. I don't know why it's not working. Well, either his word doesn't work, or I didn't do something right. There's not a third alternative. And we get caught somewhere in between. God wants to meet your needs. Let's look at some scriptures, because we're looking about what's important to God. But we're not talking this morning so much about God meeting your needs. We're talking about God caring about the needs of people that are hurting. And we're talking primarily about needs they can't meet themselves. So let's just look at some scriptures that, that, that show us what God's heart is towards those people that are weak especially. Let's go to Deuteronomy 15. This is part of the summation of the law. Now this is written to, to, the, to, um, to the, the, the children of Israel whom God was in the process of revealing himself to them by certain covenant names. The first covenant name he reveals himself to them is Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord that heals you. That was the first thing about him that he wanted to reveal to them about what he was like. What he was, that he was their healer. Verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any, within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his needs whatever he needs. Now, we don't have time to go there, but there's other scriptures where he says in the process of doing that, don't charge them interest. Don't make money off of their needs. Now look what he's going to go on to say, because what he discussed in the first part of this is that every seven years there was a forgiveness of debt. Then it, every 49 years there was, a, there was a year of jubilee where everything was restored. And what he's about to talk about is, has to do with that seven-year restoration from debt or relief from debt. Verse 9. Beware, he's talking about the attitude of that there be a wicked thought in your heart. That's a good message right there. Saying, the seventh year of the year of release is at hand, and, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. So what he's saying is, all right, if you've got a brother that's in need, and he comes to you and asks you to lend from you, lend it to him. Don't close your fist to him. Rackley says, don't close your heart to him. He says, but beware of this, because what he's just talked about is every seven years, everybody had to release the debt. Wouldn't that be nice? 
Every seven years, everybody had to release the dead. He says, oh, be careful if when your brother comes to you, it's year six. And you figure out, I got to lend him this money, but in a year, I got to forgive it. In other words, I'm basically going to give it to him. He says, don't let that thought enter your mind. In other words, an excuse to close your heart to your brother's need. Now we're talking about bait because what we're looking at now is the heart of God towards those that are poor, those that are hurting, those that are in need. And there's a special place in God's heart for the defenseless, the weak, and the needy. By needy, again, I mean people that can't meet their own needs. Not people that won't meet their own needs. But people who, for whatever reason, can't meet their own needs. All right. So part of this is built into the law so that he was commanding them to open their hearts to their needy brethren. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures. Psalm 41. If you need healing in your body, this is a good one. Psalm 41, verse 1. Blessed is he who considers the poor. And consider doesn't mean you sit there and say, boy, that guy's poor. <laughs> Ooh, I'm glad I'm not poor like that person. Consider means consider with your heart. Open your heart to them. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him, not the poor, the one that considers him, in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You want to be blessed on the earth? Consider the poor. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness, and will sustain him on his sickbed. So the Lord responds to us when we reach out to the poor. Why? Because he cares about them. He wants to meet their need, but he can't drop dollar bills out of heaven. He can only have it come out of us. We're talking about God's heart here. Let's go to Psalm 140. Verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks in your name and the upright shall dwell in your presence. David says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause. No, he takes up the cause of the afflicted. And he wants to see justice for the poor. Proverb 19. Familiar verse. Verse 17. The Lord has, who, he, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. He who has pity on the poor. And again, that's not just, we're going to see before we're done, that's not just, oh, I feel so bad for them. Oh, you know, my heart's moved for them. That's not what he means. It will become very clear in a few minutes. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, 
and he, the Lord, will pay back what is given. So when we give to meet somebody's need, they will not have the ability to repay it back to you. They may not have the ability to repay it back to you, but there's someone who notices, who not only has the ability to pay back, but oh, can he pay back with interest. Oh, can he pay back with interest. Now we're talking about bait. Just stay with me. Matthew chapter 14. We've used Jesus as a good example of bait because he managed to attract fish. And I mean the two-legged kind. The kind he was really after. Matthew chapter 14. Verse 12. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried. Excuse me, verse 13. When Jesus heard it, this was that John the Baptist had been executed. He departed there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the multitudes heard it, heard that he had left. They followed him on foot from the city. So there's a multitude following him. Again, there's fish following him. And when Jesus went out, he saw it, the great multitude. And look at this. He was moved with compassion for them. He cared about their needs. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to him, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, But we've only got five loaves and two fish. No, we don't have enough for them. And in the process of what we're talking about, and especially what we're going to talk about today, you may look at your life and what you have and say, I don't, I don't, I don't have enough. We talked about that early on in this discussion. Who am I? And so most of the reason people are timid and hold back from reaching out to people because they don't have confidence in themselves. What do I have? I don't know what to say. It's not about you. The principle, one of the principles of this story is they did not have enough. Notice they take an inventory. They already knew what they had. But they, they, in, in terms of what they had and the need, they said, we can't do it. So all we can do is release them, give them time to go away, and on their own find their food. And then when they're satisfied, those that want to come back can come back. And Jesus says, they don't need to leave. You feed them. That's what he's saying to us. You be bait. You give them what they need. But I don't have what I need. How can I give them what they need? So he says, what do you have? What is it you have? See, it's not whether what you have is enough. It's what you're doing with what you have. Because what you have is not enough. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about energy. I'm talking about, I'm talking about what you know, all the things when you look at yourself that tell you you're disqualified. You can't do it. I mean, when I look at the needs that are out there, it's so overwhelming to me, I just feel like I want to go to bed, curl up in a fetal position, 
and take my blankie and my, you know, put my thumb in my mouth and just hope it all goes away. And that's what, you know, you feel overwhelming to look at. I told you, this message, these me- I'm preaching to me and you. So what Jesus says is, no, 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 no. Your job is to feed them. But we don't have enough. What do you have? They said, well, in other stories, versions of it, Jesus, it's a little boy's lunch. We got five loaves of fish, five loaves of bread, and two fish. And, and that's not enough for the disciples. And look what Jesus says. This is the key thing. This is the key thing. Verse 18. He said, bring them here to me. It's what you do with what you have that matters, not how much you have. Take what you have and bring it here to me first. That sounds to me like, follow me, and I will make you. Follow me, and I will make you. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, because he knew where his source was, looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Now, why didn't Jesus hand it out? I believe there's several reasons. One of which is he was training them. See, he did what he could do, and he wanted them to learn to do what they could do with what he gave back to them. Now, I don't know because it doesn't tell us, but obviously somewhere between bringing those five loaves and two fishes to him, they multiplied. Whether they multiplied in Jesus' hands, I suspect it's more that as they gave it out, because there's other stories we'll look at later on, as he gave it out, there was more to give out. It just never ran out. So it was in the process of letting go of what they had and of giving it to meet somebody else's need that more was there for them to give. Okay. Now, it's interesting. This is one of the few miracles that is in all four Gospels. Verse 20. So they all ate and were filled. I remember sitting, when I was first saved, I was, when I was in that large law firm in Boston, uh, I became aware that there was a Bible study meeting in one of the government buildings. I could do it back then. And I, I, I don't remember how I got into it, but I went to go. It was once a week, and I'm sitting in there, and I was a brand-new Christian. I mean, I was a month or so old. So I was hungry for everywhere I could get the Word. And the gentleman was leading. It was an experienced, you know, a mature Christian and uh, government worker, mature Christian. And these were mostly government employees, federal employees in Boston. And there's a young, sweet lady. And I remember we're going through this miracle. And she says, oh, the miracle was this. Jesus was able to divide the five loaves and two fishes into small enough pieces so that everybody could be fed. Now, I wasn't very long in the Lord, but I could read. And I looked and I says, dear, that's a, then that's a greater miracle because it says they were all filled. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I had, you know, we had kids. 
a communion wafer wasn't going to fill them up. Not only that, it tells us what was left over. And that just shows you what the mind tries to do to bring God down to the natural. Instead of just accepting him for who he is and what he can do. Well, that's another message for another day. All right. So all eight and were filled, and this is even better, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. So remember I said, you take what you have, whatever it is, and you give it to him. And then he'll give it back to you to give away. And you'll end up with far more than what you gave him to begin with, which wasn't enough. Now, I don't know because it doesn't tell us this. And I try to always tell you when I'm sharing something that the Bible isn't clearly saying. But it's not hard for me to imagine. Because remember, you don't get it in this version, but in other versions, this was a boy's lunch. So what do they do with the 12 baskets? My own theory is they took it to the boy's house. And there's one basket for each of the unbelieving disciples. So they're... They're walking like this, following Junior back home. And while they're walking, they get to look in the basket. They get to smell the fish and the pieces of food. And it's instilling in their senses. Now, God, this doesn't say this is what happened. But it does say there were 12 baskets left over. The issue of whether you are enough or have enough is never an issue to God unless you hold on to what you have. And that includes everything from our wallet to our life. Because Jesus says, whoever holds on to his life will lose it. Whoever gives his life up will find his life unto eternal life. That's the 12 baskets. That's the above and beyond that you get back when you give what you have to him. It's the heart of God is to meet people's needs. And, that, and if you're meeting their needs, that's, what, that's why the fish bites on the bait. Because it's something he perceives he needs. He's hungry. That's why you fish at the time the fish eat. You don't fish when it's convenient for you. Well, you know, about noon or so, I think I'll be ready to go out there. You know, I slept in a little bit this morning. Now, again, I'm not a fisherman, but my understanding is you catch fish usually early in the morning or late at night. Whenever, it's whenever those type of fish eat. And that's when you've got to go there. And so, so Jesus, so it's, it's, it's whatever you have, you give to him, and through you, he'll give back to you. And you, it was the old expression, you cannot outgive God. So people kind of, you know, I've got this need. I need a job. I need this. I said, well, what are you doing with what you have? Well, I don't have much. You've got time. I've had people come, I, you know, I need a job. I said, what do, you, what do you have that you can give? Well, I've got time. Then why don't you volunteer your, why don't you sow your time to something of God? Sow your time to God. And then God will take that and multiply it back to you. Because we sit there thinking, I can't, I don't have enough, I'm not, you're not, you don't, you're right. But he is, 
So you've got to take what you do have and put it in His hands so He can multiply. I did not like math in school. I've learned because I've had to learn to work with figures. I've learned to, to appreciate it. Didn't say I liked it. I've learned to appreciate it. But I still remember from grade school my multiplication tables that one times zero is zero. Ten times zero is zero. A thousand times zero is zero. A million times zero is God can only multiply what you give him. So if you give him zero, he's multiplying it. Right? So if you don't like what you're getting, maybe you need to look at what you're giving him to multiply. Because the other thing of that is, one times a thousand is a thousand. One times a million, so a million. So if you only give back what you got, that's just one time. Multiplication begins when you go to two times, three times, four times, and on up. Again, we're not talking about so much sowing and reaping. We're going to get into that a little later this year. But we're talking more about taking what you have, whatever it is, and, and offering it to people's needs because that's what matters to him and that's what draws them. The caring. The caring. Okay. All right. Let's go to Matthew 25. I spent a lot of time or time studying this parable looking at commentaries on this parable, because to me, this is one of the most disturbing stories in the Bible. It's only disturbing when I look at me. It's not disturbing in and of itself. So I'm going to read through it and tell you why we're talking about it, and then we'll go on to one other thing. Verse 31. These are end times parables he's telling. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will come, will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and we gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? I mean, we don't remember seeing you in any of these situations. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed from the everlasting, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his, his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I am naked, and you didn't clothe me. And sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty, or a stranger, or naked and sick in prison, and we didn't minister to you? We came to church, and we worshipped you in church. 
But we never saw you naked, because surely we would have clothed you. We never saw you hungry, because surely we would have fed you. You'll answer and say to them, Surely I say unto you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, and to righteousness, but the righteous unto eternal life. Now let me tell you some parameters here. First of all, he's not telling you that you've got to do good works to get saved. Because if that's what he's telling you, we've got to rip out Romans, Galatians, and most of Hebrews. You've got to take, can't think, take things out of context. I've read commentaries and heard teachings that say, on the one hand, he's talking to all of us. On the other hand, he, that he's talking to how nations treat Israel. There, if you read different commentaries, you'll find different theories about what he's, who he's talking about. And when I get in that situation, I step back and say, okay, I may not be able to resolve who he, but what do I know from this? What can I draw from this that is clear and that I can understand? And that's what we want to talk about this morning, because that's where what, for what I want what I believe God wants to use this parable for us. Because the one thing we see to this is Jesus identified himself with the poor, the naked, the sick, and those that were in prison. He's identifying with them. And he's talking to religious people who have come and worshiped God outwardly by doing all the right things but their heart didn't care about what God's heart cared about. He talks to them, he says, you tithe all right, but you tithe herbs, mint, and and all those things. You wash the cups on the outside just the way, but inside you're you're rotten. You're like dead. The heart's off. It doesn't have the heart of God because Jesus healed people on the Sabbath and they got their nose all bent out of joint because he healed on the Sabbath. They didn't care about the people who were healed. They cared about he broke a rule. So they cared more about the rules than people. And that's a warning to us, a challenge to us. Do we just see God here in church? Do we just see God in in our prayer time and when we open our Bible and we spend our time with Him? Or do we see God on the face of people that are hurting? Do we see God on the face of people that, 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 are, in, that, are, that are in prison? Yeah, they're in prison because they deserve to be. Yeah, you want to get what you deserve? Now, I'm not talking about the laws of the land. I'm talking about God's heart. What God sees. Because that's, that's the bait that's going to... He's the bait that's going to draw them. He's the best. They need him. Some, every once in a while, somebody comes to me, Pastor. Oh, Pastor, you know, your teaching just blesses me so, and God, you know, the, the gift God's given to you. And I, I'll smile and say, Thank you. But inside my head, I remind myself I have nothing that he didn't give me. And he gave it to me so that I could give it, and through that, allow you and other people to see him more clearly. Understand this. What excites you when people preach is their preaching gift helps you to see Him more clearly. It's Him that meets your needs. I can't meet your needs, but I can take what God has given me in terms of gifting and use them and pour them out 
And as I do, it, because it's His gifting and His anointing, it allows Him to reveal Himself to you. He's what you need, not me. He's what satisfies. Well, if that's true here, it's so much more true out there who have no clue about it. So it's taking what you are, what you have, and allow Him to work through you. But it starts by how you see people around you. And when we see the down and out, and we see the, you know, the, the person that's just, you know, their life is a disaster, it's very easy to look at them and say, well, maybe they got what they deserve or dismiss them somehow. But that's not God's heart. That's not God's heart. God cares about them. I don't know if you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Have you ever heard of T.L. Osborne? He was a, he is, he's still alive. He's a powerful minister of the gospel. Huge campaigns before Reinhard Bonnke and the others started doing this. He would go into Africa and, and, and into Europe and have these incredibly large campaigns. He was in India, and I've heard him tell the story. He was in India on his way to speak at a huge crowd, or a revival, to get people saved. And in India, they have a caste system. And the lowest caste is the untouchables. And that's, you can't touch them unless you're in their class. And he was in a limousine, in his white suit, pressed and clean, on his way to the stadium to preach for God. And as they're going around the corner, there's this man, and there was, they wear a sign that shows that they're untouchable. Lying in the gutter. And the gutters over there are not like the gutters here. It was, it was where everything flowed. Let's put it that way. It was their public system. It was their sewer. Lying in this, dying. Nobody paid attention to him. Nobody looked at him. I mean, he's an untouchable his life doesn't amount to anything. It doesn't mean anything. And he's dying anyway. And he said, as I went around the corner, he said, it wasn't me. It was the compassion of God overwhelmed me. And I told my driver to stop. And why? Because you're going to be late. He says, I have to stop. He got out of the car, the limousine, in his pressed white suit, knowing he was going to appear publicly for God and he got down in the gutter held this man in his arms while he died see one thing if he raised him up and you know took him with him for a testimony he said I couldn't go past him God cared enough about that untouchable no named worthless soul in everybody's eyes, except God. And he was moved with God's compassion for that man. The man died. He got back in the limousine, filthy. Showed up in this meeting, filthy in the people's eyes. And I'm sure there were some people sitting there, how could you dare come like that? But how do you think he looked in God's eyes? How do you think he looked in God's eyes? Turn with me to James chapter 1. We may not finish this. 
We're talking about the vision for the church, for you and me, our purpose. Verse 26. He's talking about religion. Beginning to talk about religion here. What he's talked about right before this is to not be hearers of the word only, but doers. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is useless. Pure and undefied religion before God and the Father. Not before what other people think is pure and undefiled religion, but in God's eyes, what's pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Then he goes into, understand this letter was not written in chapter and verses. Then he goes in and says, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. But if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come a man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You, you sit here, you come up front and sit up front. And you say to the poor man, You stand in the back and sit there at the footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and then you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now drop down to verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Say, you know, we're in Christ, we're not bound by the law, we don't have to keep the law, we're free. Yeah, that's right, but here's what the law, here's what the, here's what the law of freedom says. For judgment is without mercy, verse 13, to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs, over judgment. For what does it profit, my brethren, if someone to you says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, and you do not give him the things that are needed for the body, what does that profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And here's my answer. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God. You do well, but don't get too impressed. Even the demons believe it. And more than most of the church, they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, what's he talking about there? He's not saying we're saved by what we do for other people. But what he is saying is if you are truly saved, if you've truly come to Christ and he's in you, there ought to be some outward sign of change. So you could read it and said, faith without corresponding actions is dead. It's in there, but it's dead. It's not producing anything. 
And here's, I was reading this two weeks ago, and here's what God spoke to me. (laughs) Let's go back to verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. And here's the question. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And this is the question God asked me. He said, son, what's the name of your church? I said, it's Faith Christian Center. He said, how many people out there know the faith of Faith Christian Center by your works? Or how many just hear your words? Because if we truly are Faith Christian Center, they're going to know our faith by what we do, not what we say. And so the challenge to Faith Christian Center is to begin to get our eyes off of ourselves, to be willing to become sensitive, to see people the way God sees them, to not look at them and categorize them and say, these are people I work with, they're unreachable, these are people over here, my family is unreachable. That's not your business or my business who's reachable or run. That's being a judge. And that's not our calling. The bait doesn't choose, decide what fish is eligible to bite the hook and what fish is not eligible to bite the hook. The faith, the the bait's only job is to smell like something that fish wants or needs. That's it. And be in the right place. And if we're in the right place and have the right heart towards people, and be willing to give of ourselves, whatever that may be. Give it first to Him, so that through us He can give it to other people. Then we're going to find they're going to flock around us. What you and I know and have, what's changed your life and changed my life, if, if one-tenth of the people you know and I know tasted what changed your life and my life, you wouldn't have been able to get in here this morning. If they knew what the Word of God has done for you in your life, and they could see what the words God has done for you in life, and they knew it was God's Word that it worked in your life, and they, fed, they wouldn't know where did you hear it, and they knew where you heard it, you wouldn't have been able to get in here this morning. Because they would have come to get their needs met. So the question I'll leave you with this morning that God's left me with, if we really are faith, Christian center, what does the world know of us, of our faith? What does the world, out around, our world know of us, of our faith? Or do they just know we speak words? God help us in this time to hear what you're saying to us at Faith Christian Center. Father, we thank you today that you're not here to judge or condemn us either, and that you love us. But because you're a loving Father, you will challenge us 
to grow and to change and to stand up and to begin to do the things that we know to do because there's so much that you want to do through us and you're waiting for us to be willing to go. Father, in the days and weeks ahead, we look to you for the grace, the discernment, the strength, and the boldness to do what it is you put in front of us to do, to give what it is you put in front of us to give, that your kingdom may come and that your will may be done in this earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.